when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to the FT Election Countdown, your regular update on the UK's impending general election from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. As you have guessed, your regular politics podcast has become the election countdown for the next few weeks. As well as our regular Saturday episodes, we'll be delivering midweek updates on the campaign. In this episode, we'll be discussing the Brexit Party decision to stand down candidates in Tory-held seats and the big dilemma facing Nigel Farage in Labour-held areas. Plus, we'll be looking at the various fiscal promises made by the campaigns and the Conservatives' efforts once again to paint Labour as a reckless tax-and-spend party. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, and political correspondent, Laura Hughes. And if you find yourself liking this episode of The Election Countdown, then do subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it. Plus, you can leave us a nice review. So the big political news in the campaign this week has been the Brexit Party. In Hartlepool earlier this week, Nigel Farage gathered the media and Brexit Party activists, who paid £2.50 to turn up, to announce that he would be standing down almost half of the party's candidates in Conservative-held areas in an effort not to split the vote with the Conservative Party. George Parker, you were up in Hartlepool at this press conference here. What drove that decision by Nigel Farage and was it a surprise? I think it was probably a surprise to some of the people, as you say, who spent £2.50 to come along to this cursory speech by Nigel Farage, which lasted no more than about 10 minutes. And if you think you've gone along to cheer on Nigel Farage to a great performance of the election, you'd come away sorely disappointed because he's basically pulled his party out of half of the electoral battleground. I think in the end, Nigel Farage was under a huge amount of pressure from some of his own candidates, from party donors, from old allies such as Aaron Banks, who bankrolled some of the Brexit campaign in 2016, and some of the right-wing press as well to basically pull out. I think what was surprising about it was that Nigel Farage pulled out of 317 Conservative-held seats, where, frankly, it would have been more useful to Boris Johnson had he pulled out of the seats the Tories are hoping to gain at the election, Labour-held marginal seats. And, of course, the big question we're all asking ourselves is, is the U-turn complete yet or is there further to go? Well, we're recording this on Wednesday lunchtime and it's about 24 hours or so before candidates close. There's still time for him to make that decision. Laura Hughes, there was some talk that a deal has been done. Now, certainly Labour and the Liberal Democrats are saying this is a pact between the Conservatives and the Brexit Party. There's been some reports of back-channeling between the two, but generally this does seem to have been a unilateral decision by Mr Farage. Yeah, it's definitely within the interests of the Labour Party and the Lib Dems to make it look like there has been some formal pact. And if you don't follow every movement in the news, you might think there has been one. Jeremy Corbyn was very quick off the mark to suggest this is exactly what Donald Trump has suggested should happen. And this again feeds into a narrative of Boris Johnson being the poodle of Donald Trump. But It really isn't to the advantage of a lot of Conservatives to look like they are in bed with Nigel Farage. There are some Conservative voters who are very worried about that. And remember, during the Leave campaign, Dominic Cummings, who's now working for Boris Johnson, did not want to work 
with Nigel Farage. They think he's toxic. They don't want to link the two parties. So it's interesting to see how that will play out among voters, if it makes them more uncomfortable, if it makes the Tories look like they've moved further to the right. And given that we have the likes of David Gork and Philip Hammond no longer in the party, again, it's quite worrying for the Tories to look like they're working with Nigel in any way at all. Indeed, and there's been a lot of debate about whether this is a good or bad thing for Boris Johnson. Now, the way that I see it, it's a good thing because in those 320 or so seats where the Conservatives won the last election, they've now got a clear run at scooping up the Brexit vote. So in the majority of those seats, it's much more likely they're going to win there. The other reason it's a good thing for the Conservatives, it means the Brexit party are no longer a national party and it's likely Ofcom will not deem them a national party when they decide who gets broadcast airtime, who gets included in the TV debate. And also posters now are not going to poll them as a national party. And we've already seen with the first YouGov survey after they made this decision, They went down to just 4% in the polls. That whole thing becomes a self-reinforcing prophecy that they just become a more minor and minor party and less relevant to the whole campaign. Yeah, but there are also MPs who are in marginal seats, seats that are still being targeted by the Brexit party, who are very, very worried this isn't enough. The whole point of this election was to give the Prime Minister majority. And Nigel Farage is still threatening that, which is why he's still under pressure to continue to pull out of seats and why some Brexit Party candidates themselves might look at the situation and realise that if they split the Leave vote, you could end up putting Labour into power, you could boost the Liberal Democrats. And that makes a second referendum more likely, it makes Brexit less likely. It was good news on the surface, and it is if you're a Tory in a seat that you already held and felt quite safe in. But those that they need to win... They haven't been won, and so we could still end up with a hung parliament, Brexit gone. That's why this whole Brexit party strategy seems to have backfired and actually might not go as far as we thought it would. Indeed, George, because this is the big question, as you said, facing Nigel Farage. Now, will he pull out of more of the 330 seats he's still contesting? Because if he stood down and say another 60 key marginals where there's a heavy leave vote, there are places the Conservatives want to win, it could put the party in a much better position. But Mr Farage is already quite grumpy about this decision and is not very happy about the way things have panned out, but he's been under so much pressure from, as you mentioned, donors like Aaron Banks, the pro-Brexit media like the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph. So do you think he's going to buckle or do you think more candidates might just unilaterally say, you know what, I'm going to take this decision and pull out and there's no time for the Brexit party to find anybody else? Yes, I think you're right. To some extent, the decision's been taken out of his hands and you could see candidates pulling out unilaterally as we speak now over the next 24 hours or so. Aaron Banks is suggesting that the Brexit party should target just 40 or so seats, the seats where they might stand a conceivable chance. The argument against that that Farage's people put out is, as you were alluding to earlier, the more seats you pull out of, the less airtime you have for party political broadcast, the less you're taken seriously, the lower you appear to be in national opinion polls. So it's a very difficult strategic position for Nigel Farage. And I was up in Hartlepool, as you say, in the Grand Hotel, and you could tell it was an uncomfortable position for Nigel Farage. He loves being the insurgent who puts the cat among the pigeons, gets everyone running. He is the one who's on the run. And going back to something Laura was saying, it's very interesting the way the Conservative Party is absolutely determined to say, look, this has nothing to do with big deals, although there have been back-channel discussions going on. I think Boris Johnson feels that Nigel Farage is on the run and he wants to keep him there. He doesn't want any semblance at all that there's going to be any sort of non-aggression pact. And the Conservatives are adamant there's no way they're going to stand candidates down in any of the seats being targeted 
by the Brexit Party, including Hartlepool itself, which is where Richard Tice, the Brexit Party chairman, is standing. And of course, lest we forget, Nigel Farage himself is not standing in this election. He wants to be a national campaigner. There was talk he might run in the Essex seat of Thurrock, but decided not to have his eighth attempt at getting into Parliament. But Laura, you mentioned the effects on the negative side for the Conservatives. This, and this feeds into a story that happened early on Wednesday, which is David Gork. He was the Justice Secretary, one of the 21 independent Conservatives who was booted out of the party by Boris Johnson and wasn't brought back quite curiously because he was one of the ones who looked as if he might be allowed back in. He was and he announced that he's going to stand as an independent in his old seat in Hertfordshire. And that's a very interesting case because he's citing Nigel Farage and the Brexit party now saying the fact is he's going to be under so much pressure from Tory MPs, the Tory grassroots and the Brexit party to basically, if we don't have a trade deal done next year to leave with no deal at the end of 2020, we need to stop that and we need to have more centrist Conservative MPs in Parliament to make sure that happens. But does Mr Gork and some of those other independent Conservatives actually have any chance of winning? I think the ones that are really big names like Dominic Grieve, who's been instrumental in putting forward legislation, backing legislation in the House of Commons to stop a no-deal Brexit and is quite popular in his local constituency, he could hang on. He's not popular amongst the actual Conservative Association, Dominic Grieve, but he's managed to sort of hold in there and, and has a strong reputation. He might be able to hang on. It depends if David Gork is a big enough name. He had hoped the Liberal Democrats might step aside, but this morning the Lib Dems are confirming they are going to stand a candidate against him. And that's really bad news because if you're a voter that wants a second referendum... Do you vote for David Gork as an independent candidate, knowing that he's probably not going to have the impact that the Liberal Democrats could if overall their majority and parliamentary share goes up in the Commons? So it's a risky strategy, but it's interesting that Gork said he didn't feel like a Liberal Democrat, he felt like a Liberal Conservative and couldn't find a place for himself in this new Conservative Party. It is really difficult for people standing as independent candidates, particularly at short notice, to run a campaign. And I was at the Political Studies Association Awards tonight and David Gork was named Politician of the Year and everyone clapped him and said, thanks for the applause. Maybe you could come and hand out some leaflets for me in, in South West Hertfordshire. Because the fact is, you've got to build a ground army from scratch at very short notice. I was talking to Anna Subri, who's running as a Change UK candidate, former Tory minister, who's saying how difficult it is. You know, you've got to design leaflets, you've got to print them, you've got to distribute them. You're going into the battlefield without a map because you don't have the voter lists either. So it's a really difficult thing. And I agree that some people say that Dominic Grieve, of the three independent candidates, is the most likely to succeed. It's going to be very tough for David Gork and Anne Milton, who's standing in Guildford. Indeed, and these independent Conservatives in some way, George, are the missing tribe of this election, people who fundamentally were supporters of David Cameron. They're not Liberal Democrats in the way they see the world and their politics and their style of campaigning, but they do feel out of home in Boris Johnson's Conservative Party. And there's going to be a question come polling day, which way do those people go? Because they might be more temperamentally suited towards the Liberal Democrats, which is what Mr Gorker suggested, but they also know that if they vote Lib Dem, they might ultimately let in Jeremy Corbyn. Yes, I think that will be one of the strongest messages in the closing part of this campaign. The Tory suggestion that if you vote for Joe Swinson, the Lib Dem leader, you end up with Jeremy Corbyn. And that will be a very powerful message for the lost tribe, as you say, the sort of Remainer Conservatives. Something else you pick up in speaking to Tory candidates is that, yes, Remain Conservatives are anxious about what Boris Johnson is doing to the party. But at the same time, there is Brexit fatigue. 
And that's the other big message at the end of this campaign from the Conservative Party. You may not like Brexit, but actually we've got to turn a page and move on. And I think that's also going to be quite a powerful closing message. Laura, you've spent some time this week on the campaign trail with the Liberal Democrats in their yellow banana campaign bus. How is it looking out there for the Lib Dems and for Joe Swinson in particular? Because they're hopeful of making big gains. You know, they'd love to get 50 seats or possibly even more at this election. But they are coming from third place. They are still the third party. And there is a question about their Brexit message here, that yes, they are the unequivocal party of Remain, but they're also the party of Revoke. How's that been going down on the campaign trail? It's actually quite confusing for them because their very hardline revoke Article 50 stance is putting off some voters who feel that they might not like Brexit, but they do respect the result of the referendum and they feel that if it is going to be revoked, that should be done through a second referendum. They'd almost prefer the party went back to the second referendum message that they've had till now. But when you then look at it sort of tactically knowing that they're not going to win a majority, well, OK, if I vote for the Lib Dems, then I'm more likely to get a second referendum. That then also slightly struggles to get through because Joe Swinton is ruling out working with Jeremy Corbyn. And if he's ruling out working with Jeremy Corbyn, then how are you going to get that second referendum? And that's the point at which people decide maybe tactical voting doesn't work. And there are a lot of voters that genuinely don't know what to do, don't know who to vote for. There are also, I was struck by many members of the public who don't actually know who Jo Swinson is. And she thinks that could serve to her advantage because as the campaign goes on, she'll be putting her face and her message out there and hopefully people might become attracted to her because she's relatively new. But I was really struck with how little people did know who she was and what the party stood for. It's not as simple. They're trying to be very simple and clear with people. But actually, when you know that they're not going to win a majority and she's not going to be prime minister, it makes it quite complicated for them. And finally, George, with the other two main campaigns, it's mostly been spending sparring so far that over the weekend, the Tories released this dossier, the cost of Corbyn, and they came up with this fantastic £1.2 trillion figure, which was essentially taking the last Labour manifesto, plus every other single thing that has been voted on or promoted at Labour Party conference and saying that you had all that up together and it would cost £1.2 trillion. These dossiers are always full of naff figures. This one was very much the case here. But it does highlight the fact that the Conservatives ran the last campaign on austerity. They're spending as well. And really, between Labour and the Tories on the issue of the economy, which is where I feel like a lot of the debate has been this week, mm. it's all been about who is going to spend most responsibly but also spend the most. Yes, it's interesting the role of the economy in this election. If you look at the opinion polling, it suggests that the economy is quite a long way down the list of voters' concerns at the moment. You've got Brexit at the top, the health service second, and the economy and the environment sparring for third place. But nevertheless, I think it's going to be a dominant theme as the campaign goes on. And the fact that we're even talking about the Tory £1.2 trillion Labour manifestos, we're doing Dominic Cummings' work here by even giving that credence. The Conservative Party then tried to break that down by the amount that would involve extra taxation be paid by each voter. But at the end of the day, the Tories look quite shaky on this because at the last election, they refused to cost their own manifesto. It'd be fascinating to see whether they're prepared to cost their own manifesto this time because if they aren't, they will be ripped to shreds on the fact that they're exposing themselves less scrutiny than their own opponents. And it feels that Labour are trying to respond to this. They've not actually released their manifesto. They've got their big Clause 5 meeting on Saturday mm. where they will decide how much stuff from the conference will actually make it in and how much of it will become targets, aspirations. And one interesting round has been over the four-day week because if you accept that as Labour Party policy to happen in the next parliament, that has huge spending implications and huge implications for the public sector as well, whereas figures 
such as John Ashworth, the Shadow Health Secretary, have been saying, no, 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 that's actually not going to happen. That's a much longer term thing and it won't be compulsory. But you do feel there is this big push and pull for Labour in terms of their base wants to be radical, or the Corbyn Easter MPs want to be radical on the economy. Yet there's this pulling back fact of saying, well, let's not go too far because that may come back and bite us with the public. I wonder whether the more cautious approach will prevail, because if you think back to the 2017 election, the Labour manifesto was seen as one of the stars of the whole campaign. It wasn't really attacked by the Conservative Party. And the Corbynites were very keen to present it as being very much in the mainstream of European social democracy. And as such, you know, people quite like the Labour manifesto. Now, I don't see there's any great political advantage to the Labour Party going far out to the left it might sort of tickle the tummies of some Corbynites, but if you present a sort of completely open flank to the Conservative Party, what is the point? You're not going to be deterred from voting Labour because you think they're insufficiently left-wing. So why not just keep it moderate, tone everything down and worry about things after you've won the election, if you win the election? Indeed, I'm not quite sure that's how many people in Labour think, but that does make a lot of sense. And finally, for both of you, where do you see the campaign at at the moment, Laura and George? How do you think sort of both parties are doing and what's going to be dominating over the next week? I think that the Labour Party seem to be having an all right campaign actually so far. They've managed to really keep the conversation on issues like the NHS, which we said at the beginning would be crucial for them. They don't want to talk about Brexit. They want to talk about social policy areas where there are huge gulfs and differences between them and the Conservatives. Boris Johnson's initially, you know, his campaign went off to a really, really embarrassing rocky start you had cabinet minister quitting lots of gaffes and there have been over the last few days candidates kicked out because of islamophobia all these things wrapping into it but i would say the fact that nigel farage did pull out of all the seats being held by tories was a huge boost to him and a huge cause for some celebration in party hq so watching what farage does next is going to be vital for both the tories and labor absolutely and george Well, I think I agree with most of that. The election hasn't really got going yet. The campaign hasn't got going. So it's impossible to say how this is going to go, particularly as the campaign, as it showed in 2017, can be really important in these days of very fluid electorates. In the past, the election's going back over 20 years. The campaign changed virtually nothing. And I agree with Laura that Labour's campaign's got off okay. I think the Tory message is clearer. And I would say at the moment, Boris Johnson would be the more confident of the two main party leaders. I'd agree with that. And I would say that out of all the mistakes made by the party in the 2017 general election, a lot of them have been righted. As you've said, Laura, they've made new mistakes this time, particularly about gaffes and, you know, certain people they've put out on the airwaves. But generally speaking, I think CCHQ will be quite happy with how it's going. And if Labour doesn't start to climb up the polls next week, you could start to see a bit of panic on their side as well. That's it for this little episode of the FT Election Countdown. Thank you very much to George and Law for joining. In the meantime, if you'd like more general election coverage or other FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. Your midweek FT Election Countdown was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Anna Dedder. We'll be back on Saturday. Until then, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.